One current pastor today has said, whatever it is that we hope in will finally change our behavior. Whatever it is that we hope in will finally change our behavior. You don't change your behavior by targeting those specific actions or behaviors that you want to see changed into your life. This will almost never produce any real or lasting change. It can't change the heart inwardly. We're changed outwardly by being changed inwardly. That's what Peter has been doing for us. He's been modeling that. He's been giving us a perspective. This starts with the very seat of our being. What Peter will call in this text our hearts. So what is it that you are hoping in this morning? Is your life driven by the hope of greater affirmation? The recognition of your gifts and abilities, whether at work or at home, somewhere else. You just want to be valued or respected. Is your hope driven by what you think will give you the most pleasant or comfortable life now? You just want ease and are seeking to fill all kinds of natural desires. Is your hope driven by security? You just want to be safe from all risk or hardship or pain. You want to be safe and secure from any kind of suffering for you or your loved ones. What is it that you are hoping in? Whatever it is that we hope in will finally change our behavior. Peter is going to burst all of these temporally minded bubbles for us and provide us with a biblical focus for how we're to stand firm that's the message of the book in a hostile world let's look at our text this morning chapter three we're going to back up and begin reading in verse eight the context will help us understand what's happening in verses 13 through 17 so first peter chapter three verse eight this is god's own words to us today finally all of you have unity of mind Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Ask for his blessing as we consider this text together. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds 
to hear the truth of your word this morning. Help us to again affirm the conviction that these are your words for us today. That you intend for us to hear them. You intend for us to understand them. You intend for us to apply them to our lives. Help us to do that by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Text this morning, in our text this morning, God calls his people to share their hope with unbelievers even in the midst of hostility. Now, would you please scan back through our passage, verses 13 through 17, look back down there at the text and see if you can identify, see certain themes that are repeated in these five verses. What concepts are, is Peter bringing up again and again? First, note the theme of hostility or suffering in these verses. There's a concentration of that here in these five verses. I've colored them in my Bible so they catch my eye more readily. Notice the words harm, suffer, slander, revile, and suffer again. A second theme focuses on the, God, the believer's godly actions in the midst of that opposition. Note especially the word good. That's used four times. Zealous for what is good is the first phrase. For righteousness sake. Good conscience, good behavior, doing good. We'll focus on that third theme later as we move through the passage. Perhaps you can identify it as we go. This morning we're going to work through the message primarily by focusing on these three themes. Now as we've already identified, Peter's writing this passage to encourage to strengthen believers who are facing hostility for their faith. This is primarily an encouraging letter to stand firm. These believers are being shunned, ostracized, ridiculed, and perhaps very practically, they're being kicked out of their families. They're losing jobs. They're being rejected by lifelong friends. But now, if I'm honest with myself, I haven't faced this level of opposition in my life. I haven't faced this kind of hostility. Now, I know some in our church family certainly have at one point or another, but I think like me, most of us are wondering, what do I do with a passage like this that's primarily focused on believers who are suffering for their allegiance to Jesus Christ? Does this have nothing to do with me then? Does it apply I think we'd have to say not directly, but it certainly does indirectly. And here's how I'd encourage you to hear this passage and other passages in 1 Peter on suffering. First, consider that God may pre be preparing us for a time when it will cost us far more for believing in Christ than it currently does today. I do think we're awakening to the fact that we are standing very much in the minority in our culture. And it may begin to actually cost us something to say, I believe in Jesus and the ethical commitments that come along with that. But also note that these principles that are God's word for us are an encouragement as we face any kind of hardship, any kind of suffering in our lives currently. As you meditate on this text, as you hear this sermon, consider how the Spirit would encourage you with these words in the ways that you are facing difficulties now. I think as you think through it that way, you'll find that these principles still apply, still encourage, still strengthen us. So Peter wants these believers to have proper expectations 
for what it means to love and live for Jesus in a world that can't understand those commitments. Peter's going to say, and as he begins to focus now on the heart of his message, believers will very often face hostility for their faith of one kind or another. And I've tried to provide an analogy for what Peter is doing as we think through this letter. Because a lot of times as we've been working through the letter, it's hard to say, well, what practically is he telling me to do? With our children, it's often necessary to prepare them ahead of time for an event that we're about to attend. Especially if that event is something that does not naturally excite them. In the life of a family, you're going to go to things that the kids aren't truly excited about doing. With our family, when we're headed perhaps to a wedding or a funeral, they don't know that person that well. They're not totally understanding everything that's going on. Maybe some similar event. We serve our children by telling them ahead of time what to expect that service to be like, how to behave, what the expectations of their parents are while they're there, and perhaps even to provide them with a positive incentive that if they do well during that event, they'll receive that reward. That's kind of what Peter is doing here, isn't it? They may be suffering to a small degree, but he's preparing them. He's shaping expectations. He's explained to us what we should expect life as a follower of Christ to look like. So first, he says the world will often treat believers with hostility. Now when we first read verse 13, it very likely strikes us as confusing or strange based on the context of the book. Much of what Peter is saying to these believers throughout the letter is focused on how they're supposed to handle suffering. So why would he say, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing what is good? Why would he say that? As if it'd be strange if you're going to be facing harm. What does this mean? There are two options for how to understand this rhetorical question. It could be that Peter is making a general statement that if you're committed to doing good as a believer, it is unlikely, though possible, that you will face suffering. For instance, we read this in Proverbs 16, 7. It says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So this is a possible option. Not every believer faces the same kind of suffering, the same level. We know that not all the apostles faced the same intensity of suffering and persecution as the others. The apostle John lived a very long life, though he was isolated and exiled on the Isle of Patmos. But Peter and Paul and others were executed at the hands of Nero. In the book of Acts, another illustration, James was beheaded while Peter was released from prison by an angel. So perhaps this is saying that you're not necessarily all going to face the same kind of persecution. But the second option seems to make better sense of this verse and fits better with the immediate context. Peter is not denying that there are those that would do them harm. But that no wicked ruler, no evil master, no unbelieving spouse that's harsh or any other sinful human being can harm a believer in the ultimate sense. The quote from Psalm 34 in verses 10 through 12 is emphasizing that God is the final and just judge. No man will escape his notice. No man will escape justice. Ultimately, God's people, if they do good, will be rewarded. So who then can harm you 
in that ultimate sense. It'd be similar to what Paul is saying in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he's just listed places where Christians are even going to die for their faith. The point here is not to debate the intensity or timing of suffering. Peter is intending to shape our perspective. To give us expectations on the hardships of our life. We naturally tend to conclude that when we face hardship or suffering, we must have done something wrong. We probably deserve this, that God is not for us. Isn't it in the times of our pain that we wonder, where are you, God? Because pain can't be good, can it? Hardships can't be a part of God's plan. We so often tend toward the conclusion that suffering is bad and unwanted. Remember when Jesus and his disciples come across the man born blind in John 9. What do his disciples ask Jesus? As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? That's the first and most natural conclusion of the human mind. He says, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Think of that long extended conversation that Job has with his friends about the nature of sin and God's judgment. No matter what their friend Job, and they are friends with him, they know him well, no matter what he says to the contrary. His friends argue that God would never allow suffering into the life of someone that didn't deserve it in some way. That's our natural way of thinking. But Peter is dealing in this letter with unjust suffering in this life for allegiance to Christ. Peter's telling us it's going to be okay when we face hardship. This isn't outside of God's plan or control. It's not a mistake or an accident. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. Or that he's disciplining you necessarily. He may be training you. He may be strengthening you. But he's not abandoned you. Verse 14 indicates that for many believers, they will face suffering, ridicule, and opposition. He writes, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. That's the challenge of this text, right? Suffering and blessing, those two don't go together in our minds. We have to be wondering how does suffering and blessing go hand in hand? These things seem so contrary to how we naturally view hardship. The word blessing here does not primarily focus on our internal psychological frame of mind. As you're going through, through suffering, you'll be happy. You'll enjoy it. He's telling us rather that this is how God views it. And that therefore how we should view our suffering. Certainly once I adopt God's perspective, there will be a sense of peace. There will be a sense of settled calm and trust and hope. Peter's fleshing out for us, for these believers, what Jesus taught in the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 10 through 12 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that's what it is to be part of my kingdom. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for great 
is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is part of the plan for all of God's followers. Think throughout scripture, which one of God's faithful servants didn't go through hardship? How are we to see and understand suffering as blessing? In this letter, Peter's telling us that suffering is a clear, it's an affirming sign that we are truly aligned with Jesus. It's an encouragement that just as God brought glory out of Jesus' suffering, he will do the same for us. Just that he kept Jesus all the way through that suffering, he will keep you as well. You're in union with him. Similarly, James tells us to consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces something good, endurance. And let endurance have its complete result so that you may be whole and complete, lacking in nothing. Remember in Acts, the religious leaders in Jerusalem are growing angry at the publicity, the expansion, the popularity of Christianity. As the apostles are preaching, thousands are coming to Christ and being added to the church in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin call the apostles together. They tell them, do not continue preaching. They have this debate amongst themselves. And Gamaliel says, if this is of God, leave them alone. You can't stop him. So they have them all beaten and then let them go. And we see something that is just so strange to the natural mind. Luke records, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. How do you rejoice when your back is being beaten, when you're suffering physical pain? That just rubs us the wrong way in our current culture, doesn't it? But Peter is saying your expectation, your mindset should be that sometimes standing for Jesus Christ has a cost, even a physical one. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, Afflictions work for good as they make way for glory. Not that they merit glory, but they prepare for it as plowing prepares the earth for a crop. So afflictions prepare and make us ready for glory. Thus we see afflictions are not prejudicial, that God is against us, but beneficial to the saints. God uses them to build our hope, our confidence, our longing for him. He's often removing the crutches of life that we too often lean on. He's confronting our idolatry of comfort, of security. Peter not only enables believers to be prepared for hostility, encourages them to prepare, but he now instructs us how to respond. Number two, the people of God must respond with godliness and a winsome answer. Notice how Peter returns again and again to that theme of godly behavior. Our walk and our talk are supposed to match up. They're supposed to fit together. God's people must be known for integrity and honesty. Unbelievers with whom you interact, whether they're family members, neighbors, co-workers, fellow businessmen, shouldn't be able to point at hypocrisy in your life. 
They shouldn't be saying to themselves, I don't ever want to deal with that person again. They're always out for themselves. They're always unfair. They're always selfish, harsh, or dishonest in our interactions. They should find us the most agreeable to work with. I read this week of a Christian lady who lived in the highlands of Nairobi, Kenya. She had employed a young national as her houseboy. After three months, he asked this lady to give him a letter of reference to a friendly Muslim businessman who lived several miles away. This lady didn't want to lose her houseboy just when he had learned the routine of the household, so she offered to increase his pay. The boy replied that he was not leaving for higher pay. Rather, he decided he would become either a Christian or a Muslim. This was why he'd come to work for her for several months. He wanted to see how Christians acted in real life. And now he wanted to work for several months for the businessman to observe how Muslims lived. Then he would decide which religion to follow. This Christian lady was stunned as she recalled her many shortcomings in dealing with the boy over the past several months. She could only exclaim, why didn't you tell me at the beginning? Lost people are watching our behavior even when we don't realize it. Even when we don't recognize it. If we're zealous for what is good, especially when we're mistreated, then it's a powerful witness for Christ and the power of the gospel to change our perspective, to change our lives. Now, we're not talking about being sinless, but rather living obediently to Christ as the consistent direction of your life. Is he making a difference? When you sin, do you confess it? And make it right with those you've sinned against. That kind of righteous life is the basis, Peter says, for a verbal Christian witness. God calls his people to consistent godly behavior for the sake of the gospel. Peter's admonition here for how we're to relate to even a hostile world is thought-provoking, isn't it? He's providing us the alternative to our natural responses of either fleeing of fighting, or of trying to fit in, right? Those are the natural responses to pressure from our culture. He's not advocating that we withdraw from the unbelievers that God has placed in our lives, even from those who are caustic or verbally questioning our faith. One author notes, faith does not close door to relations with other people out of either fear or hate. It turns rather in openness to others, just as it turns to God. Cultural isolation is not to be the route taken by the Christian community. It is to live life open in the midst of the unbelieving world and just as openly to be prepared to explain the reasons for their life. Are you living in an open way with those around you? Do you even know unbelievers who can see and examine your life? Secondly, God calls his people to winsome verbal witness for the sake of the gospel. The second part of verse 15 tells us, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The word for defense here is where we get the idea for the study of apologetics. That's a branch of Christianity, of Christian study that seeks to learn how to answer skeptics and critics of the faith. 
This is a worthy pursuit for believers. It's an appropriate application, but it's not the primary application. Think of it. Remember to whom Peter is writing. Many, if not most of these believers in these congregations would have been illiterate. Many of them are slaves. Some would have been literate. Many would not have been. Instead, Peter's urging all believers to consider the foundation of their hope. Can you give an answer for it? He's concerned that all Christian believers are able to humbly and respectfully defend their, con- their confidence in Christ to anyone who might ask. So here's the very significant question that Peter's asking. Do you personally own your own faith? Do you truly have an answer to where your hope lies? Is your answer based on truth that you're living out? Or is it based on something like what your parents believed? What a former Christian mentor or pastor thought or told you? What your friends believe or just what you're accustomed to. You just grew up in Christianity so you've just assumed it. Peter's saying you can't assume your faith. I would encourage you to take the time in the next day or so and ask God with the deepest, the greatest sincerity, why do I believe in you? This is the point that Peter's driving for, to encourage and build and strengthen our hope in Christ. Why do I really believe? If someone were to ask me, what would I say? Why do I count you as my hope and treasure? What is the real foundational when nobody else knows what I'm doing, when I'm not just trying to please others with my answers? What is the basis of my hope? Do you personally have this hope? This confidence in your relationship with God? Do you have this deeply held conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord in the innermost being? If you don't, can you truly be prepared to answer as Peter's commanding us to be? Is anyone going to ask about your hope? Have you tested it out? Young people, can I especially encourage you not to take your faith for granted? It's so easy growing up with the routine of going to church living in a Christian family, to just assume that you have embraced the truth of God's word for yourself because that's what your family believes. But have you, have you, is it yours? Can you explain the gospel to a friend who doesn't know Christ? Peter's not assuming that everyone in these congregations are Christians just because they say so. Now, how would you go about Building your faith, your hope, so that you can give an answer. First, get in the word for yourself. Second, discuss your faith, examine your questions, consider where your answers are weak with other believers here in this body. Join a life group and talk to them about where you need to help, you need help to better understand your faith. Think of it, if you want to know if your faith is genuine, Connect yourself to a local body and live amongst that body, not for a few weeks or months or years, but for your lifetime. And in time, 
It will be seen whether you truly know Christ or not. It will be put to the test. Finally, a very practical solution. We have an elective this summer focused on the foundations of your faith. It was announced this morning. It's based on a discipleship book titled Grounded in the Faith. Your pastors, other members here in the body would be glad to point you to other resources to pair you with another believer to help you in your growth. Don't just assume it. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, please talk to somebody around you. Ask, how could you find that out? Come find me in the lobby after the service. Now, the point here isn't that we have to have perfect answers. We want to be careful that we're not overstating this. Peter isn't saying you have to have every answer figured out for every question that someone might come up with. But the goal here is to treasure Jesus so deeply, so personally, that others can't help but notice what's going on in your life. They will see that overflowing from your inner being. Your behavior is different. It's not just cleaning up the outside. It's an overflow of the relationship you have internally, of your hope. Can people see your hope in Christ? Is your treasuring of Christ truly making a difference in the way that you live so much so that people are curious about your stability, about your joy, about your hope? That's what Jesus meant when he tells us to be salt and light. And notice that this kind of evangelistic opportunity is created by a godly life. It's almost a passive approach in this text. There's other places where we're told to go out and share, certainly. But in this text, Peter's saying, you're living such a godly life that people are like, that's, that's not normal. That's different. What does that person know that I don't know? What's shaping their life? Now, Peter will go on to say there's an appropriate manner that's to accompany our answers. He says that we're to make our defense with gentleness and respect. The fact that he must include these qualifications means that he understands our tendency is to make our answers about ourselves, right? You wouldn't have to say be gentle if it wasn't our proclivity to be maybe a little bit too harsh or too strong, too bombastic. It's easy for us to become defensive or combative. Peter counteracts these natural responses by urging us to be gentle. Have you ever been or begun to answer a question with lots of passion and confidence only to find out that you didn't really understand the specific focus of a friend or a spouse's or a child's question? Answering with gentleness requires us to slow down. I heard this phrase in a book recently, we're to love the listener when we're sharing the truth. Love the listener. How are they hearing? It's more important what they hear than what I want to say. It's not all about what I want to say. Often this requires more listening than talking. Peter says we answer not only with gentleness, but respect. Here we have that same Greek word now that we've seen several times translated as respect. Where we said it's phobos in the Greek. It's fear, where we get phobia. Respect is an appropriate choice, but it could be a little misleading as to who we're respecting. Who's the object of the respect? 
Reverence is probably a better translation for clarity. It seems best to understand that Peter is saying we're to answer with gentleness toward others, keeping in mind our reverence to God. We're not to fear man because we're honoring Christ above all. Doesn't this again help remind us our conversations about our faith are not primarily about winning a debate or an argument. We can't argue someone into the kingdom. We can't win a soul with our skills or rhetoric. Our goal isn't necessarily to have all the answers. Our goal is to point to Christ. Be his messenger. Just say what you know the truth to be. It's all right to tell someone humbly, can I think about that for a moment? I know scripture has a good answer to that, but I'll need to study that a little bit more and get back to you. Third, the secret to enduring hardship is treasuring Christ. Verse 17 encourages us again to adopt an eternal mindset in the face of suffering. He writes, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now notice what that phrase right there is doing. It's telling you that the hardships that you face in this life whether it's opposition for your faith or the ordinary trials of life, the hardships of relationship, the discouragement of perhaps working with a child who's not walking with the Lord, the hardships you're facing financially, the hardships you're facing in culture, at your work, amongst your neighbors, those are all within God's sovereign plan. You know what Peter's encouraging us? God doesn't waste your pain. God doesn't waste your pain if you'll trust in him. He doesn't allow suffering without a loving reason behind it. If suffering is part of God's will for you, then you can be sure that it's also within his sovereign control. We have to remind ourselves of this over and over again, don't we? We need to rehearse the truth we know about our God. Perhaps choose a passage like Isaiah 41.10 this week to meditate on, to help you think in a God-centered way through the hardships of life. God commands us, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or perhaps rehearse the truths in Hebrews 13.5 and 6. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now if we go back, the second half of verse 14 and then verse 15 provide us with a negative and a positive in shaping our view of suffering. And we've held this to the end so that we can see the foundation. First, he says we're not to be afraid or troubled. He knows that's our natural tendency in opposition, fear, flight. And with caring pastoral admonition, he anticipates that natural response, the fear of man. But then he commands the positive, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. As we consider this last point, I want us to pause and just think about how God has worked this out in Peter's heart. Remember how much Christ has changed him. Earlier in his life, he was afraid of what a little servant girl might reveal about his allegiances to Jesus, who's on trial and facing condemnation. In cowardice, 
Peter even curses and says, I don't know him. He's not about to be aligned with Jesus then. Yet once Peter had set apart Christ in his own heart, he couldn't stop talking about him. Even when he received beatings and imprisonments and threats to his life, and eventually it would claim his life. What made the difference? Overcome the fear of man by embracing the greater fear of God in a hostile world. We overcome the fear of man. We overcome our frustrations, our anxieties, our temporal outlook by living in the fear of God. We speak for Christ. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts revere or treasure Christ. The New American Standard probably does a better job with the Greek in verse 16. It says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, as the King, as the Sovereign One, as the One who holds your hand through life, who guides you, who's with you, who's unified Himself with you. What does it mean to sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart? This is certainly the key to all that Peter's been saying. The word sanctify is the same word used in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. It means to put him in a category all by himself. Put him there in your innermost being. He's to have the highest place, the greatest value. He's to be your most supreme treasure, your greatest admiration, the one you esteem and honor and love the most of all persons and things in this world. If you don't, you'll put something else in that place. You'll be consumed by this fear of man. We're to meditate on his lordship. We must consistently recognize and submit to his kingship on a day-by-day basis. It means we have to do what Peter's modeling for us over and over again in this letter. We must rehearse the gospel. Remember, whatever it is that we hope in will finally change our behavior. Do you see the remedy Peter's offering? Don't be troubled Don't fear what others can do to you. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. I have to grow in my understanding. You have to grow in your understanding and application of his love and sacrifice and example. He goes before us. He stands with us. Our love and obedience to him flows out into our behavior. That's why Peter will say in verse 16, your good behavior in Christ, this isn't just something you manufacture by the power of your will. John Piper helps us apply this truth this way. When you get up in the morning, you should think, today the ultimate purpose of my life is to hallow the name of God. Hallowed be thy name today. The main reason I'm alive today is to show the value of Jesus to others. Is that how we live? Do you see why so often our faith is so small? We're not clinging to the rock, the cornerstone. God's calling us today from this passage to stir up, to build up our hope in him together with his people. 
Remember, this is Peter encouraging and instructing several church families. Make Christ central. We bear our burdens together. We are to hope in him together. We're to treasure our Christ together. And only as we hope in him will we be prepared to live well and answer well for our Savior. Let's close with prayer. Father, we rejoice in your grace in our lives. Lord, you speak difficult words for us in calling us to suffering, to recognize in many cases, most often, it is inevitable. And yet, Lord, we have nothing to fear. For our good God stands behind it all. In the end, we know we win. In the end, because of Christ, we know we are victorious. So if God is for us, who can stand against us? Prepare our hearts and minds. Comfort and encourage us now in the hardships that you've allowed into our lives. Help us to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts as we face those difficulties, those obstacles, those hardships. Help us to rest in him. May our hope continue to shape our behavior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.